0: Music Welcome to Episode 109 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest commentator, uh, Perianne Boring, who is the founder and president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. Perianne, wel- welcome.
1: Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, Alan Cohn uh, is here, formerly the head of strategy for DHS, second in charge of DHS policy, now of counsel to Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, I- we're joined for the first time by Katie Castle, an attorney in Steptoe's uh, uh, regulatory and really um, cybersecurity practice. Uh, um, a, uh, Katie, welcome.
2: Thank you, Stuart. Uh,
0: and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA, DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's get started. Well, uh, just we've brought it back for what I hope is one last uh, uh, trip around the uh uh uh, uh the horn here uh, uh, apple versus fbi a bunch of dumb little stories as far as i can tell right the court has vacated the iphone uh uh hack order so uh um apple uh, uh apple's order has been vacated uh, um the fbi has agreed to try to hack the iphone uh, uh or maybe it's the iPod in the, uh in the arkansas murder case is oh, that right or oh, not and, that, and that's right or and then they decided not to <laughs> yes uh, uh bizarre um the fbi says it's testing Uh, to see whether it can unlock more uh, iPhones. Uh, um, And uh, let's see. uh, And and Google says... Yes, we unlock uh, our phones, too. It's sort of a bunch of little things that I completely unsurprising, I, I, I thought, except the fact that the FBI did a stutter step on the question of whether they were going to open up an iPhone involving those uh, kids out in Arkansas.
3: Well, I think it's interesting. I think it, this is kind of the opening into the next phase of this discussion. Sorry about it, that, that. This might be around for a while. Oh, In, uh, in different clothing. Um, but I, I, think it's, it's fair to say that, that in the, in the California case, you know, both parties came out, uh, bruised but standing. Yes. Right? Um, you have, uh, Apple not having to, to comply with a, uh, with an All Writs Act order, but now with questions about who's, exactly who is hacking into its, uh, its, uh, operating system at the behest of the FBI. Uh, and now you have the FBI or the Justice Department Uh, maybe in a little different position in the all Ritz Act cases going on around the
0: country. Uh, yeah, well, although I'm not sure. we can do sure. this. Yeah. Uh, i I I suspect they aren't going to turn out to be much different, and th- these cases are clearly going to get litigated in many many places. Maybe w- with not quite the uh, emotional baggage that the San Bernardino case carries, but uh, uh, everybody now knows what the stakes are. It's hard to believe we aren't going to see lots and lots of those uh, those cases.
3: Yeah, and it's interesting. The FBI put out a, a notice to state and local law enforcement on Friday, right, saying that. Uh, you know, we, uh, we had many people contact us after the the Apple case went public. Um, we had an outside party demonstrate uh, a possible method for unlocking the iPhone, and that uh, method for unlocking the specific iPhone proved successful. Um, and so the FBI will, of course, consider any tool that might be helpful uh, to our partners and any requests for
0: assistance that, uh, that may be relevant. But that's pretty much what they always do. I mean, they are the um uh, the investigator of last resort uh, in the United States when uh, when you can't crack the case any other way you call the FBI and see if they might be able to help you
3: right and so does this constitute you know kind of an acceptable lawful hacking activity or do we move to the next phase of of um you know the vulnerabilities equities process and and disclosing and the battle over whether the this uh, the vulnerability has to be disclosed
2: yeah
0: i uh, there all have always been those sorts of uh uh battles I guess what's different is the battle up to now has usually been some poor uh defendant criminal defendant saying as indeed I think there was a case uh, there's this story this week uh, where uh, some guy who was a child porn aficionado uh, uh, was caught up because the FBI had gotten access to the tornado that had all this uh, uh, child porn on it and he wants to know how is it that you got access to that uh, uh, since it was something where the FBI had taken it over essentially uh, and so the defendant is saying you need to tell me exactly how where uh, you got in, and, and obviously that's a kind of gray mail. Uh, uh, they want to make sure that the uh, uh, the government uh, uh, pays a heavy price uh, in disclosure if they want to convict this guy.
3: And of course, that that's less likely to be an issue in the San Bernardino case because the accused are deceased. <laughs> Not so in the Brooklyn case. That's right. Uh, where of course you have a little bit different setting. Uh, you have. A, uh, drug uh defendant not terrorism defendant yep. you have an older version of the of the operating system but you
0: still have the the same cudgels to be wielded by the parties. so here's my grouse of the week about the uh uh the apple fanboys that have uh, been pursuing this case the the, the notion is that <clears throat> uh somehow the FBI has this, this this vulnerability, and if they don't share it with Apple and patch it up, uh, uh, millions of phones everywhere will be uh, uh, subject to uh, uh, compromise. But, you know, about the last thing I worry about is that somebody's going to have my phone and then find a way to unlock it. It's one thing to to infect my system because it's on the air and it's getting messages or emails or instant messages, all of those tools are things that really could compromise hundreds of thousands, if not millions of iPhones. But the idea that uh, um, there's a new way to unlock a phone that you have in your hand, I mean, how many phones are you going to have in your hand?
3: Well, and so that, but that goes to the question of what exactly is the vulnerability and can it be done in some other way other than having it
0: in your hand? i suppose although the fbi only wants to unlock phones that it has in its hands so i i i i i feel as though it's sort of like two factor authentication you actually have to have the phone plus the vulnerability in order to start attacking it and and that strikes me as a, not a, a situation where you really are desperately afraid of massive compromise okay. i think
1: It begs the question of a much larger debate, which is the cryptography debate, and the importance of cryptography and consumer-related products, and which FBI has been... Uh, very active and, and is, uh, you know, the importance of cybersecurity and consumers being able to have access to cryptography and being able to understand how to use it.
0: I think that's right, Perian. Uh, uh, that uh, there's a big crypto debate. Uh, but then there's this small debate about getting access to the phone, which turned out was not about crypto. It was about uh, whether you could uh, uh, keep the, uh, could get rid of the 10 strikes and you're out Rule uh, as people were trying to get into a phone, and that was not really encryption; that was just a security measure they were fighting.
3: But it's interesting, you know, we've been talking about this in a number of <clears throat> different settings, particularly like the Wassenaar debate, uh, about how you know pretty much any government that you that um, that exists out there is talking from two perspectives. Uh, on the question of in-
0: be- uh, encryption beneficial or detrimental. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we're getting that now. The the French who were beating us up for uh, uh, invading their privacy and with those big American companies that don't care about privacy. Now suddenly they discovered that uh, uh, Apple is saying, you yeah, know, we're not going to un- un- open up these uh, iPhones. And they say, well, we've got all these iPhones from the attacks in Paris and Brussels. You've got to undo that. And if you don't, we'll, we'll charge you a million dollars. Uh, uh, Ian fines, uh, so that 's the pending legislation in the uh, French Assembly exactly, exactly,
3: um, and I think that it 's interesting, even within the European Union um, and this is no, uh, no surprise to you and other similar officials who who got the, the uh, privilege of negotiating with them um, there 's always going to be a multitude of uh, of perspectives uh as you as you tour around the member countries so you have uh uh folks like the dutch saying no 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 we're not we're not we don't advocate for this at all and and you have the french uh, with uh, uh a recent uh, conversion to the cause of uh, of unlocking iPhones
0: all right so i here's here's the uh, topic that i just can't help but uh, uh talk about cuz i actually blogged it uh, and this is uh, this is another encryption uh, uh issue uh, um, Hillary Clinton's email server, it turns out there's something really interesting about it, which is that uh, um, when it was originally set up, there was no TLS encryption at all on it. Uh, and then, uh, after she'd been sworn in, after she'd taken a trip, uh, suddenly in March, she gets a, uh, an encryption uh, um, uh, digital certificate that uh, guarantees that uh, um, the transmission, at least, is encrypted. Uh, and I thought that was interesting partly because I thought, I wondered, what the hell got her so interested in having a certificate in March? Uh, um, and now, thanks to FOIA, we have something that's very interesting and suggestive of what was going on because it turns out that in March, the government uh, um, uh, began um, uh, uh, to release some uh, 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 some emails. And what it turns out is during March, after Secretary Clinton had gone to China and sent emails, presumably gone to Indonesia, gone to South Korea, gone to Japan, um, in March... Uh, the um, security forces at the, secre- the uh, Secretary of State's office start saying, you know, you can't use these Blackberries. You've got to stop. Uh, and they sent in a, a, a memo, and most of it de- uh, has been declassified. A couple of pieces are declass- uh, are still classified. One of the classified sentences apparently said, well, there was a security incident that the intelligence community identified uh, on your trip that is relevant to the question of why you shouldn't use BlackBerry. And so uh, it turns out, it seems to me, that what we have is a situation in which the government uh, discovered um, sometime on the trip that Secretary Clinton took in Asia, uh, the government discovered that somebody was listening to her Uh, reading, reading her mail. Uh, a lot of reason to think they were reading her mail and that they finally told her about it about the middle of March and by the end of March she had gotten herself a new digital certificate. uh, Which I, I thought was interesting because it means we have a lot to understand about exactly what was happening. Mm In the State Department, in March of, uh, uh, 2009. So Stuart, so fresh off of your,
3: uh, your winning interjection into the Apple versus FBI case where you had the Stuart Baker
0: declaration. Oh, I could do a deposing Hillary Clinton. Now you're trying to get into the, um, uh, to the presidential <laughs> so that debate. I, I I don't have, I, I, I think, uh, uh, that campaign already has enough snark to uh, 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 for anybody, uh, so I don't intend to write a deposing Hillary Clinton uh, uh, post. But yeah. I think it really is interesting. I mean, it's just odd that she would have suddenly gotten that certificate.
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting, and uh, but I did I did pull off um, a kind of a, a compilation that our friends at the Center for Strategic and International Studies had done of kind of major. Uh, uh, hacking events over the last mm-hmm. several years, and and so um, there were some other things going on around that time. So from April to October 2008, as was later uh, disclosed, you had an ongoing, um, apparently an ongoing theft of over 50 megabytes of email messages and attached documents from the unclassified State Department networks. Yes, oh, okay, that's uh, right. All that's
0: Cablegate. Yep, yep,
3: yep. November 2008, you had um, breaches of the classified networks at DoD and CENTCOM. Um, uh, even CSIS was hacked, uh, in December to try to read the emails of incoming, uh, uh, administration, uh, folks, uh, FAA computer systems hacked. So there was a, we were, oh, we're no, still I, a little bit shy of the current kind of lockdown on,
0: uh. Oh no, we're totally not locked down, but I, I there's just, there's just no protection at all for the emails. Uh, I mean, this is, the, failing to get a digital cert and run TLS, uh, is the sort of mistake if you're, uh, sending credit card numbers that, uh, that no one should be making. Right? Um, all right. Uh, uh, well, uh, I wanted to uh, uh, talk a little bit about the FCC rules. And uh, the FCC has now come out with privacy rules. Uh, and uh, these are the rules that famously the FTC uh, commissioner has been and moaning and, and snarking about. I mean, really, it's more snark than, than my uh, uh, Tim Cook uh, uh, message. Uh, um, and now we've seen the rules, and at least uh, some people are saying, uh, some of the reporters are saying, well, they're actually pretty tough. Uh, Katie, did you look at those? Uh, did you think they were tougher than the FTC's rules?
2: Um, I did look at them, and... uh I don't know about tougher. They're clearer. They, um... They outlined some minimum security requirements like risk assessments and training and uh, authentication. Oh, I, oh, now requirements. we know why the
0: FTC is so upset <laughs> they're clear and they actually tell you what you're supposed to do of course, the FTC can't have that
2: right, right. so what I saw was you know mostly things that the FTC is required in their you know case by case analysis uh, kind yeah. of actually laid out. Um, some of the provisions are a bit strict. there's a notification requirement that you have to notify customers in ten days, which. Well, to me yeah. seems pretty short and pretty unrealistic in some situations.
0: And there's right. a kind of default opt-in rule, is that right?
2: Right. so um, so for anything that is sharing data for um, marketing related to services that aren't communications related, you need a, to get an affirmative opt-in from customers, which I think is a little different than. Um, most usually it 's an opt out or the companies kind of just have to decide
0: so there I, there was if I remember the Republican commissioners objected to this, saying basically look there 's a competition to be involved in web advertising data collection data informed uh, web advertising, and by far the dominant players." are people who are subject to the FTC's uh, uh, supervision, Facebook and Google. Uh, And the ISPs are way, way behind. Uh, And and the the Republicans were basically saying, why are we burdening the folks who are the furthest behind in actually uh, uh, dominating this industry um, instead of giving them... Uh, uh, an easier regulatory time. It seems as though we are regulating the number five players much worse than, much more heavily than the number one and two players.
2: Right. I think that's that's the argument they're making, and the argument I've seen, the really only argument I've seen, um, kind of describing why would be that um, when you choose your ISP, you don't, you can't necessarily. Um, Negotiate as well, or kind of change service providers on a whim, whereas you can can, stop visiting. I can
0: can clearly uh, 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 choose whether to use Facebook or not. Exactly. My 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 family would never just refuse to communicate with me if I don't use Facebook. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, uh, Yeah, I'm 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 guessing that's not the. uh, You you do usually have at least two ISPs you can choose from. You can use your cable company or your phone company. Uh, I don't think there. I don't know who's number two to Facebook, but. Uh, uh, it's not exactly a, a serious competitor,
2: right? And the the other argument against the opt-in that I've seen is that it's actually against consumer preference. That consumer, most consumers would prep would prefer to opt in anyway, so they would just right. Um, they're well, kind and of wasting resources. I, and,
0: and I do think, you know, the, the problem the ISPs have is, oddly, they, they are technically in the very best position. You can't go anywhere on the net without asking your ISP to send you there. Um, and so... Uh, They have access to everything, every place you go. They may not see what you do when you get there, but they can uh, identify every place you go, whereas, uh, we live in the illusion that Google and Facebook don't know everywhere we go. Uh, Uh, and so they're, they've been in such a strong technical position that they've gotten more regulatory attention and more consumer reluctance to uh, involve them in their web surfing than uh, uh, the companies that seem to be giving stuff away for free.
3: It does seem like it's also part of what a, a theoretical meeting I can imagine in my head. I I, wasn't, I don't know about it. I wasn't there, but a kind of a meeting of everyone on the in, on the administration side and uh, the executive branch, the independent agencies. Of what does everybody have to do for cybersecurity, and, and can everybody do it? Right. Um, it's interesting the internecine warfare that has broken out because I think it goes to this question of. Can you do this by notice-and-comment rulemaking, or does it have to be case-by-case, The the
0: ITC's um, kind of snippy response to this is still a little hard to understand, but but one of it may be that uh, uh, if the FCC can do this by uh, notice-and-comment rulemaking, somebody, like the Commerce Committee, is going to ask the FTC why they can't. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, what's
3: also interesting, uh, you had, I think, uh, you know, right after this uh, debate broke out, um, you have the FCC coming out and saying that they can't, uh, they can't do anything about the Netflix throttling on the Verizon network, right? Uh, because they're an edge provider, Aha, and not and they're, an not, they're not
0: regulated, right? Yes.
3: Right. Um, so it may be less, um, what's the best regime that applies, and more. You know, what can I do? What's my place at the table in this uh,
0: yeah. in this debate? Well, maybe the FTC will say that they can do something about throttling. You, you never know. They uh, uh, you could imagine them saying, well, if they can't, maybe we can, and uh, uh, we'll show them up. Exactly. I did
3: want to go back to one other thing that Katie pointed out, which was the the breach notification provisions. Yes. And there's actually um, there's three elements of it. Number one, that you have to notify affected customers of breaches no later than 10 days after discovery, as Katie explained. You have to notify the commission of any breach no later than seven days after the discovery, Um, and you have to notify the FBI and the Secret Service um, of breaches of customer uh, uh, private information, reasonably believed to relate to more than 5,000 customers, no later than seven days after the discovery, and at least three days before notification
0: of Wow, this is complicated.
3: Huh? Yes, well, it's number one complicated. It kind of reminds us of the the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, notes that we were talking about, but also I think interesting that it ties together. The notification of the customer, the notification of the regulatory yep. agency, and notification of law enforcement, which is uh, a debate that's been going on, right, about
0: because right, the, um, the, the, the law enforcement would rather we, know first, Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, although I'm not sure they've done much with their head start. But others,
3: cases. I think, have, have seen – other of uh, the regulatory agencies have seen themselves in something of a competition with law enforcement, uh, with yeah. potentially different ends, where here the FCC is trying to demonstrate
0: – That they're you know, on, we on the we same
3: are, side. This is all the same
0: side. So I uh, – We woke up. Uh, well, actually, I guess last week, um, we got a notification um, before the crime had even occurred, before the breach had even occurred. Somebody posted on some darknet uh, uh, site. Uh, here's a list of law firms that do a lot of M&A work. Uh, we'll be glad to break into those networks using our sophisticated, cool phishing tech, spear phishing techniques uh, for anybody who wants to to do some uh, uh, front-running uh, uh, and insider trading uh, uh, was that a completely bogus set of stories or was there something real uh, behind that
3: it's hard to know i mean obviously the phenomenon of cyber crime as a service is is
0: yeah but absolutely i look, i could i could put an ad on craigslist <laughs> saying you know i'll break into uh, the 10 largest uh, uh, law firms or the 10 largest accounting firms uh, and uh, no one would take that seriously Stuart didn't actually mean that we do that. <laughs> no, no, that's not an offer. You can't take it up because I didn't include a price. Uh, but I think it's enough
3: to make the law firm sit up and, and take notice. And, of course, we're sitting in one right now.
0: Yes. Um, no, no, and, and we, there, was, there was a whole bunch of emails about uh, whether we were uh, at risk and what we had done. And uh, uh, everybody's rushing off to the law firm uh, uh, ISOW uh information sharing uh, analysis organization analysis organization uh, and uh, um so it was good for them so uh promoting it uh, helped the cause for them uh, but i uh, it's a real worry but i'm not sure this story is real
3: uh, you know i think unfortunately we're going going to have to uh to wait and see and that's always a bad place to be um apparently the FBI did uh, issue an alert um about the but about potential attacks so there's enough
0: seriousness around it that uh that well actually should, the uh... most serious thing uh just came uh, was in the paper this morning this law firm in Panama Mosek Fonseca had the biggest breach in WikiLeaks history I mean ter- terabytes of data uh compared to the uh, you know couple of gig that came out of uh, cablegate uh, i and uh, they have exposed all of the uh, uh companies that people set up under uh, uh, with phony directors and phony uh, uh executives to hide their assets around the world including some of Putin's cronies a uh, bunch of people from Iraq uh, uh the uh, uh, a political leader in Iceland I uh, I think that may mean that WikiLeaks may not be serving out of Iceland much longer uh, it, it was but certainly the enormous amount of information that was stolen there suggests that law firm security might need another think.
3: And if you think about it, I mean, putting aside the threat Question: Just the consequences based on the types of information. Think about the variety of information right. that was disclosed. You have uh, ex- exceedingly public figures, of course, um, with uh, embarrassing uh, information potentially um, uh, impacting the political systems of multiple yep. countries. You have a- the actual financial information um, you have all all sorts of types of information where um, you know we've had months of media coverage about breaches that just discover just one type of that yeah. and so um, leaving aside the question of whether the threat is a 0. 00001 or it's you know 0. 0.99999 um, the consequences are yeah. enough that's right, right. To, to justify the concern
0: yep uh, okay um, and um uh, Two or three other quick stories that I just uh, uh, saw. Um, uh, The FBI, of course, is fighting with that uh, defendant in the child porn case. What I was struck by is a story from Cloudflare that said 94% of the traffic... That comes from Tor is objectively evil. Uh, uh, it is actual malware, actual uh, exploits, demands for uh, for payment, uh, uh, bot instructions for DDoS attacks, and the like. So, ninety-four percent of the stuff that they're sending—putting—that's before you even ask: Are people going to sites that have child porn, uh, where uh, surely uh, sixty to eighty percent of the site traffic is that kind of thing. Uh, so that's the 60, 80 percent of the 6 percent that they weren't talking about in Cloudflare. Uh, you know, the U.S. government funds TOR pretty much pays 90, 80 percent of their expenses. Uh, that's looking like the worst possible bargain. You've got all these criminals benefiting from it, and they keep talking about Some human rights campaigner, someplace who gets the benefit of it. I'm not sure it's it's worthwhile anymore.
3: Well, what's interesting is if you know if you take the 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 split that you've said of the 60 to 80% and it's a, it's a reasonable estimate of the 6%. The 94% was interesting the Cloudflare player said is not only is it per se malicious it's basically automated. Yes. This is all, you know, comment spam, vulnerability
0: scanning, ad click fraud, content scraping, login scanning this. this was scanning, Cloudflare like basically saying we we will protect you from this stuff. We 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 will give you the option of saying just don't send it to me uh, if you're an enterprise. Uh, and we're going to have to uh, provide special scrutiny to uh, uh, exit node uh, traffic, which certainly makes sense. Uh, uh, but it is, you know, Tor was sold to us on the same basis that uh, encryption everywhere was sold to us. It's going to be great for privacy. Turns out maybe it is, but it's really great for crime. Uh, last uh, 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 thing is just a recommendation, but it's all ties to this. Uh, uh, there was a great series of stories about this criminal uh a mastermind who you know had done contract murders and a whole bunch of other things uh, uh, named Larue it turns out that he before he turned to cyber to to that kind of crime he wrote the uh, basic code behind truecrypt which is what everybody uses the open source or quasi-open source uh, um, uh, encryption uh, tool that's very easy to use and very effective uh, and that um, Edward Snowden famously uh, leaked uh, data suggesting that uh, NSA was having trouble with TrueCrypt. True uh, it turns out the, the guy who wrote it was not some human rights campaigner but a guy who on, on the verge of turning into this uh, criminal mastermind who is written about in... Uh, a whole series that, uh, uh, is linked to in the, in a New Yorker article, but, uh, worth reading just because of the weird interface between nerder, complete nerdery and, uh, uh you know, uh, uh contract murder. <laughs> Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, well, that's uh, with that lead-in, Perry Ann Boring, uh, uh, we're going to talk to you a little bit about uh, um, uh, Bitcoin and uh, uh, the Chamber of Digital Commerce. Uh, um, uh, Perian uh, has a uh, uh, has had a great career in a relatively short period of time. Uh, you were a uh, uh, contestant in uh, beauty contests, you were a journalist uh, uh, and then how did you get into uh, the Chamber of Dil- Digital Commerce?
1: So I first came to DC uh, to work for a member of the House, and I worked on financial services uh, on, the, on the committee. Um, he's on the committee now, yeah. Uh, Congressman Dennis Ross of Florida. Um, one of the key pieces of legislation that I worked on was the JOBS Act, which brought us crowdfunding, peer-to-peer lending type rules. Uh, Bitcoin, digital currency, was a similar technology that the committee was briefed on while we were debating the JOBS Act. Um, it did, did not end up making its way into the legislation. However, it did pique my interest. And as someone who studied monetary policy, I come at this from an economics perspective. Yeah,
0: so this is this is very similar to what happened to me when I was at NSA. Uh, people came in and said, the internet Internet's going to change everything, and Internet commerce is going to change everything, and we need uh, uh, encryption to enable uh, uh, Internet commerce. And uh, I got really interested in it, and it shaped the rest of my career.
1: There's a lot of parallels between the early days of the Internet to uh, the blockchain, and we're in very early days of blockchain technology. Um, I studied this independently for several years um, throughout my career on the Hill, and um, I left Capitol Hill, went into journalism, um, and my show covered alternative financial markets. So we covered all sorts of everything you wouldn't see on your mainstream uh, news outlets. Uh, Bitcoin was part of that. Uh, and then the year 2013 happened, and I always joke that Bitcoin in 2013 is the Best gift you could give any journalist because it was a crazy year. The price increased over 3,000% that year. Um, but there's also a lot of crazy headlines, which is where a lot of the skepticism comes from. Everything from Liberty, uh, Reserve, Silk Road, Mt. Gox. As someone who actually had an understanding of the technology, I was able to really understand a lot of the misinformation and miscommunication that we were seeing in the media. Not, uh, not hard to see why this happened because it's complicated. Journalists work under very tight timelines. they probably don't have the time to really dig in and understand no, the technology. Usually, once, once,
0: once the story is written, they just keep rewriting it with a couple of new facts in the in the, uh, first paragraph. <laughs>
1: and in journalism, there's also an incentive to create hype, because the more clicks you get, the more successful you are as a journalist. So there's some types of uh, you know conflicts with that as well. But as someone who had worked on Capitol Hill, worked in public policy, I very um, soon came to realize that there was a real need to have formal representation for this technology and why Washington, D.C. That year, we also started seeing rulemakings come out of FinCEN, IRS, Treasury. There were multiple hearings on Capitol Hill, and there really wasn't any credible resource who was able to speak on behalf of the technology. Um, so I also was writing for Forbes at the time and uh, started just making public calls to the industry saying, you guys really need someone here uh, with as a credible resource just to be in Washington, to talk with policymakers, uh, you know, go to the Hill, uh, help people better understand what the technology here and be here on a full-time basis and after you know screaming that through my work for several months uh, it became pretty obvious that, uh, this role had chosen me. And, uh, and over time, that's really where the evolution of the launch of the Chamber of Digital Commerce came from. And we're the first trade association the only trade association here in Washington, D.C. that's representing, uh, we represent the digital asset and blockchain industry. And we use those terms to really open it up to the full gamut of the technology type of infrastructure that's being created in this industry. But our goal is, uh, to build a pro-growth legal, legal environment that allows for for jobs, uh, innovation, and investment, uh, and to be the key resource here uh, for public policymakers as they're looking to better understand this technology.
3: And maybe just go over one more time, kind of from the, the beginner perspective, the difference between blockchain as a currency, or sorry, Bitcoin as a currency, and blockchain as a platform.
1: Yeah, this is a big piece of the education cap, the education gap that we're seeing here in Washington. Plenty of people have heard of what Bitcoin is and they kind of get the idea of digital currency, but making the distinction between Bitcoin and blockchain is important. And if you can make that distinction, if you can are you able to comprehend that, you're you know, above the 90% learning curve around the world of understanding blockchain technology. So the blockchain is a, a digital asset transfer system. You can transfer any type of prov- provable fact or asset over the blockchain. Bitcoin as a digital currency was very much the first use case on the blockchain. So an easy parallel that helps people better understand what I mean, I would um, go to the early days of the internet. One of the first consumer use cases for the internet was email. Send a simple message over the internet instantly, anywhere in the world, you know, pretty much for free or very low cost. The blockchain is is very similar. One of the very first consumer use cases that we've seen is digital currency. And that's what we call Bitcoin. You can send a, a currency very quickly, efficiently anywhere in the world um, pretty much for free or for very low cost. But just as the internet is much more than email, over time we've seen so many different types of use cases make its way on top of the internet. Everything from e-commerce, completely transformed e-commerce, um, public libraries, all sorts of information, government functions uh, operate online. This will be the evolution of the blockchain as well. So the first use case that we've seen and the one that is currently, um, you know, the one in the market would be currency. But you can use the blockchain to transfer anything of value. So even from a government perspective, perspective. You could encrypt passports, so social the, the, securities, identity, electronic health records. It will transform you know, all sorts of areas of the economy and markets.
0: So I, I always thought that you know digital currency has one it's of course it's easy to send, because you just send an email, here's 10 bucks. Uh, uh, the trick is, as the Motion Picture Association and the Recording Industry Association discovered, is once you've bidified it Anybody can copy it as much as they want. Uh, uh, and so the real trick to a digital currency is you have to have a mechanism to say who transferred it first and to record that in a way that everybody can rely on. Um, and that's really what the blockchain does. Uh, and so Bitcoin just can't exist without a blockchain. Uh, and the blockchain is, the, I think, the key technical development in the context of uh, 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 any digital currency.
1: Yeah, and I would highlight that digital currencies are nothing new. We saw the first digital currencies in the
0: 80s. This was David Chown, I think, wasn't
1: it? Uh, Everything from uh, Eagle, DigiCash, were some of the first ones, yeah. PayPal, one of the first networks. What's different about the Bitcoin blockchain is the distributed ledger. That's where the really leap in technological um, and computer science innovation comes from, is that distributed ledger. So for the first time, you have a decentralized system that anyone has access to, but also anyone can innovate on top of. And with the distributed ledger technology, you can think of it as database uh, technology or database security. So you,
0: it, Obviously, Visa can keep track of every expenditure I make, and they can be the authoritative uh, person saying, he spent that already, he can't spend it again. Uh, what's unique about the blockchain is it, it allows um, a bunch of people to do that without any one authority figure.
1: So Visa would be an example of a closed network. Uh, the blockchain is an open network. So I can talk about this in cybersecurity uh, forms as well. Uh, so Visa, having a centralized security network with perimeter security, that's really what we think of today when we think of cybersecurity. That's most of the models that we look at. The problem with that is when a network like Visa is holding all sorts of customer data, uh, hackers know that there is this honeypot of data out there. And if they can just get into it, they can make their career off of that or they will profit off of that. With a distributed ledger, you don't have a perimeter security model. You have a decentralized model where the information is shared across every single user, every single node or every single computer that's keeping track of the ledger itself. So there is no central server to hack. It doesn't exist. The blockchain to date literally has never successfully been hacked. And it's not because it's unhackable. It's because the model is, there is nothing to hack. There's no central server to go after. So it's not only a leap in the way that we change Um, uh, uh, currency, but it's also a leap in cybersecurity. And uh, and so many of the topics that we've talked about today, I I, I can see so many different use cases for distributed ledger technology and cybersecurity.
3: So, you know, everybody talks about financial services as potentially the first area that that Bitcoin and the blockchain will disrupt. And you have a lot of financial services institutions, large and small, investing, particularly large ones, investing a lot of money and figuring out what is the blockchain technology and how do I use it. But where do you see it, this technology kind of going next in terms of its disruptive power?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen pretty much every single financial institution on Wall Street has publicly come out. They're investing significant amount of resource into blockchain blockchain technology and distributed ledger technology. This will go into literally every single area. And uh, like I was uh, explaining earlier uh, in the early 90s, how companies needed to have an internet strategy. Companies today need to have a blockchain strategy. And I'll tell you that pretty much every Fortune 100, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 company, uh, they're all looking at this. They may not publicly be talking about it, but the chamber, we're working with a lot of these companies and we're aware in all different industries, they're looking at how distributed ledgers can change the business model. Um, So everything from uh, the music industry, how we transfer IP. Um, I'm a big advocate for electronic health records. I was in the White House the day the Affordable Care Act was signed into law. Electronic health records have been mandated. Uh, How are we securely going to put consumers' health, patients' health records in a digital form. Well, the cryptography behind the blockchain uh, could be a way to do that. We've also seen in the U.K. the chief scientist, Her Majesty's chief scientist, uh, put out a study last month outlining uh, a number of different use cases within the public sector. So here in the United States, um, everything from uh, uh, social security cards to uh, passports, I already mentioned electronic health records, taxation, um, public benefits, being able to follow them all the way through. Uh, for greater transparency, to ensure, um, you know, to to root out corruption. These are all potential use cases. Uh, And and through our work at the chamber, we're working with a lot of different uh, the, the global IT consultancies who are working on these strategies for governments, for public sector, private sector. So over the next... Several years, over the next five, ten years, uh, the way that we transfer assets will be completely transformed.
3: So some of the use cases that you described are built on the Bitcoin blockchain, the, the, the public distributed ledger. Some involve the evolution of private blockchains and other distributed ledger technologies. And then there's also kind of emerging other uh, ecosystems like the Ethereum uh, ecosystem. Uh, where does the chamber see uh, kind of all of this going? Does the chamber favor any one approach over another?
1: So we don't favor any type of digital asset or distributed ledger technology. We are what we say technology agnostic because we're work- working on public policy, legal regulatory implications. So whether you want to do a public blockchain or a private blockchain or an Ethereum <sighs> or a Ripple, from a legal perspective, it's all Pretty much the same. Uh, and we, we think the markets should, uh, be the ones who really decide what's going to be, uh, the best use case, uh, going forward. Um, there is a big trend, uh, in, uh, a direction from, uh, away from, uh, the, the, Public Bitcoin blockchain, Uh, and and it makes sense. So for financial institutions who want to use distributed ledger technology, financial institutions are some of the most regulated entities on the planet. They have very strict rules of who they can and and cannot do business with. So when you're working on a public blockchain, uh, there's all sorts of compliance questions, questions that are not clear. The regulators have not been very um been very clear in in what is permissible and what is not permissible. So So
0: this is the problem that, that, at least, in the first instance, all of those transactions are anonymous. You can't tell who who made the transfer. Is that right?
1: Well, and well, even a greater question if you look at something like OFAC. Um, so I'm using my my company is holding Bitcoin. It might be a bank, and have, some of my customers have decided they want Bitcoin now. I'm holding Bitcoin. What if that Bitcoin was mined on a computer in North Korea? How, how is that interpreted under, Mm -hmm. you know, with, could, could that be an effect violation? Maybe. We don't actually know because we don't have clarity, but as a financial institution, I'm not willing to take that risk. So I need to have more control over the information that's coming in and out of my system. Over time, as we begin to see the evolution of this technology make its way into so many different industries, even into the public sector, we will get more regulatory clarity. But in these early days, companies have to be safe in the way they approach that.
3: And there's some other trade-offs between those different types of distributed ledgers, right? So you have the Bitcoin blockchain which is pseudonymous basically. Um but it's not alterable by uh by anybody outside of the protocols that are established on the, on the computers. Private blockchains, you can have you don't have to have uh, anonymity or pseudonymity on the on the private blockchain, but the private blockchain is administered by some type of central entity. Um, and as such, it is amenable to to alteration. Um, when you're talking about audit, or when you're talking about compliance, um, you know, do you see how do you see some of those uh, those differences uh, playing out? Because in some cases, the uh, unalterability uh, may be the bigger benefit. In other instances, the central you know the central control um, and the the lack of anonymity or pseudonymy may be the better the bigger interest.
1: The direction I see, and we don't know, because it's going to be years before this actually plays out, but I think a likely scenario is that all all roads are going to lead back to the public blockchain. Because we can set up a, an intranet, if you will, or a, our, our own public, our private blockchain for Alan, you and I, to trade whatever, uh, gold. Um, but then at the end of the day, you're going to need a third party to audit that. Um, one way that could be done is it could be all hashed and recorded into the the public Bitcoin blockchain and and we don't know which direction it's going to go but I think that's a likely scenario that we could be using uh, private blockchains but at the end of the day that information is stored and secured within a public blockchain
3: and is that what people would refer to as a side chain
1: that could be through side chains that is also highlights the importance of interoperability between the various types of ledgers that are out there
0: so one of the questions I I, I had is um, why do people actually, this is the distributed uh, maintenance of a, uh, a registry uh, or a ledger, um, why would people do it? Now, the Bitcoin system sets up incentives, financial incentives, for people to do this processing. Um, it, how do you do it in a private uh, uh blockchain? And I have the sense that we're spending Enormous amount. We're warm in the planet uh, these days uh, with uh, Bitcoin mining. We don't actually have to do that much calculation in order to maintain a registry. Should there be some other compensation mechanism for the people who are maintaining the registry that is a little less uh, uh, computationally and energy intensive?
1: So for the types of entities that are wanting to use private blockchains and really the lowest hanging fruit that we see here is for clearing and settlement – uh, that would be a proprietary network and they would have a proprietary solution to that. So, so they just
0: they just say, we'll give you a nickel every time you run one of these uh, uh, blockchain calculations
1: for us. Well, I mean, the incentive would be built into, into the protocol itself, right. but also these systems are being set up to, at the end of the day, bring down costs. The cost of clearing and settlement can significantly, I mean, Santander wrote a report saying they believe they can save $20 billion a year by using a distributed ledger for clearing and settlement. So whatever Whatever the incentive is, they're still going to have a huge amount of cost savings than the legacy systems that the financial institutions are currently using. So a
0: financial system could, a financial institution could just, in theory, just dump their current, uh, ledger systems and move to a private blockchain and save that kind of money?
1: No. So there's a lot of regulatory questions and compliance questions here. So in order to update any type of legacy system into anything, whether you're going into the distributed ledger or something else, uh, obviously there's going, there's a lot of questions from a regulatory perspective on how to do that. And that's part of the work of the chamber is helping institutions who want to use this technology being able to get from theory to implementation.
3: So where do you see some of the biggest hurdles on the regulatory, the legal side to this type of kind of fundamental changeover in the way that the, the at least the back ends of these systems work?
1: So the biggest challenge that we see here from a regulatory perspective, especially in the U.S. federal government, is that, well, one, there's very little understanding about what this technology actually is. And then like you had mentioned that law enforcement is in competition with regulators. That's very true here as well. And and also regulators are in competition with regulators. And we're seeing regulatory arbitrage across various international jurisdictions. So I'll walk you through a couple examples here and just within um, the U.S. federal government. So FinCEN was the very first regulator that put out guidance on virtual currency, Bitcoin technology, where they're calling Bitcoin virtual currency. They regulate it like a currency. Uh, then you go to another area within the U.S. Treasury, the IRS, and they regulate it as property. Then you go um, outside of that, uh, the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, for example, they have testified in Congress saying that Bitcoin itself does not mean the definition of a commodity under the Commodity Exchange Act, and they are regulating it as such. Now you go over to the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, They are looking at this through the lens of security. There have been enforcement actions on these types of technologies, companies using these technologies as a securities perspective. So I just walked you through four different examples from property, currency, commodity, security, and that's only four entities, and we're already engaged with over 10. So from a company who wants to use this technology, you can just imagine how complicated it is to be in compliance with all of these different regulators. And if there are conflicts of laws between the different regulators, it might be Possible to actually be in compliance with everybody at the same time. Not to mention that this is global technology; it does not see borders the way that we do with other types of e-commerce infrastructure that we use. Uh, So it needs to be able to work seamlessly across the various jurisdictions.
0: Those are are all people trying to regulate the the Bitcoin, which has a lot of has gotten a lot of regulatory attention and certain amount of regulatory angst. I'd be surprised if the blockchain could be regulated as property or as a security. Uh, um, I wonder how much regulatory attention blockchains are getting and from whom.
1: Well... As we're looking at this through the lens of a a currency perspective, it's important that as we're putting out various regulations and guidelines, that those definitions are written with a narrow focus to ensure that business models that have nothing to do with the currency don't get caught into regulation that were intended to. Ah,
0: okay. So the people who, obviously, if you run a blockchain, you're dependent on Bitcoin ultimately paying people to do your uh, your ledger maintenance, uh, and you don't want to find yourself regulated just because you are dependent on uh, Bitcoin, or worse, have the structure that um, pays your ledger maintenance uh, suddenly cut out from under you because uh, Bitcoin has run into some regulatory headwind
1: right and so as we're working with regulators who ha- see concerns through currency implications and, and rightfully so there's all sorts of risk with that uh, it's it, it's important that the regulators understand what else this technology can do it's important that they understand the difference between Bitcoin a digital currency and the blockchain the digital asset transfer protocol uh, that way as they're writing regulations they're not putting in uh, you know definitions that can include software developers or you know other business models that have nothing to do with the currency itself
0: all right well I we, we're coming to the end of the program we always ask our guests if they've got any upcoming events or speeches or uh, <laughs> papers they want to plug is there anything our uh, listeners ought to know about uh, future appearances that you're going to be making a testimony?
1: So we just got through our our big uh, conference, the D.C. Blockchain Summit, which was March 3rd, which was uh, standing room only, sold out, and a huge success. Right. Um, throughout the rest of the year, we're going to be rolling out a series of best practices, uh, industry guidelines, uh, all sorts of regulatory proposals. Uh, and
0: how do people come to participate in this if there are people listening to this, either in the government or in private industry, who want to participate? What should they do?
1: They should contact our, um, us through our website, digitalchamber.org. Our membership is open to all those interested in using uh, blockchain-based technologies and digital asset technologies. And we have a number of working groups that are working on a number of different regulatory challenges for the industry. And uh, it's important to be a part and it's important to be engaged. It's important to have a seat at the table.
0: Well, Perry Ann Boring, thank you very much. You're the head of the uh, uh, Chamber of Digital Commerce, uh, um, and uh, we're glad to have you. Uh, Katie Castle, thank you for your first uh, uh, session with us, uh, and Alan Cohn for being a uh, – the the rock on which we have built this uh, podcast at this point uh, uh, as always to our listeners uh, if you've got any feedback cyberlawpodcast uh, at steptoe.com will get us the message uh, um, I'm still going to stop giving the phone number because nobody leaves abusive messages uh, uh, but please do uh, go to uh, uh, iTunes and leave us a review the more reviews that you will leave the harder it will be for Tim Cook to cut me off when he realizes that I'm there uh, this has been Episode 109 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Suzanne Spalding, who's the Undersecretary for NPPD, the unfortunately named uh, Cyber and Infrastructure Protection uh, 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 arm of DHS, by Michael Hayden, former CIA director, former uh, NSA director, the only person to have done both of those jobs, and the author of Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror, uh, and Orrin Kerr, uh, our computer crime uh, law guru, who uh, uh, has been on before, but it's been too long since he was on to uh, correct all of our legal errors on the cyber uh, law. Uh, and we hope all of you will join us uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.